Maria Kibaloi leaned back and tried to catch her breath as she waited for the next contraction. It was on April 25, 1950, and she'd been in labor for several hours. Maria's family home was little more than a hut in the woods in rural area Davao province in the Philippines. Already the mother of eight children, Maria had never expected to find herself going through labor again. But fate had decided something different. Not long after her husband Jose had moved the family to this area, she'd become pregnant. Now she was encouraged to push as the baby's head began to crown. Feeling a contraction spreading from her abdomen, she started pushing, the same way she'd done eight times before. She felt the blood rushing to her head and sensed the pain blooming outward from her body. As she pushed, she felt herself floating away. Suddenly, the scene before Maria disappeared. She saw a great cloud, and on the cloud, she saw God. As she stared in fascination at the radiant image, she heard a voice speaking to her in her native language. It said, that is my son. A cry erupted from Maria's lips, and the scene dissolved back into the little hut in the woods. In front of her, she saw the small, squirming body of a baby boy. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, in a one-part episode, we'll focus on Apollo Kibaloi and the Kingdom of Jesus Christ, the name above every name. The organization claims to have 4 million followers in the Philippines and another 2 million worldwide. We'll explore Kibaloi's rise to power as the self-appointed Son of God. We'll also examine several criminal charges that have been brought against his organization, including human trafficking and murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Calling all podcast fans. Spotify makes it easier than ever to discover new shows to love. Get personalized episode recommendations and easily preview them before you dive right in. Find exclusive video episodes from your favorite hosts and guests. And with some, you can even connect with them through polls and Q&A directly within their episodes. It's everything you want in one app. So what are you waiting for? Try the podcast experience today on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? 
malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. Apollo Kibaloi is the controversial leader of one of the largest independent churches in the world. Portraying himself as nothing less than the savior of humanity, his millions of followers treat him with godlike devotion. But his path to these exalted heights was long and complicated. Most of what is known of Kibaloi's early life comes from his own accounts, released by members of his church. These accounts are often filled with ecstatic religious language and include numerous anecdotes of questionable authenticity. As we explore his background, we'll do our best to separate fact from fiction. Before he began calling himself the Son of God, Kibaloi was an ordinary Filipino boy from the rural outskirts of Davao City. He was born in 1950 within sight of Mount Apo, the highest peak in the Philippines, which his parents named him after. Throughout his childhood in the town of Tamayang, Kibaloi heard his mother Maria tell the story of his birth and how God had proclaimed him to be his son. It didn't mean much at the time, perhaps he thought his mother just liked telling a cute story. However, that was far from the case. Maria completely believed in the story, and those feelings were further cemented when she noticed Kibaloi's unique traits as a child. He was unusual. He refused to go barefoot and wouldn't play with other kids if he thought they were dirty. Maria saw this as a sign that her son was too pure for the world. At some point in Kibaloi's childhood, his family encountered hardships. It's not clear to us what these problems were. But to protect her special boy, his mother sent 10-year-old Kibaloi to live with his older sister, Helen, around 1960. Helen lived in Parang, about five hours away. Kibaloi attended school in town and, according to his account, led a difficult life under what he called the rule of the stick. His sister owned a bakery, and Kibaloi claims he worked there from midnight to 6 a.m. baking bread before heading off to school for the day. He learned to do things meticulously and faultlessly. Otherwise, his sister smacked him and forced him to do it again. When he wasn't baking bread or going to school, he was busy with homework or chores. He had very little time for friends or fun. This hard work and lack of companionship may have played a psychological role in the drama that unfolded in his mind. At 14 years old, Kibaloi began having dreams of Armageddon. In the first one, he stood outside watching in horror as the streets of his town were engulfed by chaos and confusion. Gasoline reservoirs near his house exploded in rapid succession, and fire spread across the landscape. People screamed and fled from the approaching flames. Overhead, Kibaloi saw dazzling objects streaking through the sky, growing larger and brighter as it neared the ground. At first, he thought it was a star, but as it drew closer, he realized it was Jesus clothed in vivid white, bright as the sun. The following night, Kibaloi had the same dream, but now flames, chaos, and pandemonium engulfed the entire planet. This time, he saw a phrase etched across the sky. It read, 
the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. Though he says he didn't know it at the time, this verse came from the second chapter of the book of Acts in the Bible, and it predicted the end of the world. Kibaloi hadn't grown up with much religious training, despite his mother's devout beliefs. He didn't know what to make of these fiery revelations, but sometime later, he had yet another dream. This time, he heard a voice speaking to him, saying, If ye seek me, ye shall find me in my way. After that, he heard the voice more often in his dreams, and the experiences left him confused and emotional. In time, he came to believe God was calling to him to do something special. As a result, 20-year-old Kibaloi decided to attend the United Pentecostal Bible College in Manila. While there, he came across the passage in Acts he had dreamed about several years earlier. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, he believed God had sent him dreams and visions for some purpose he didn't yet understand. Still searching for God's plan, Kibaloi discovered that he had a knack for preaching. When he spoke, he came off as charismatic and mesmerizing. He didn't even have to think about the words. They just welled up inside him and spilled out of his mouth. Friends in college called him the preaching machine. By the time he graduated in 1972, he was ready to embark on a career as a minister. By then, he was active in the United Pentecostal Church of the Philippines, also known as the UPCP. He spent his weeks traveling around the country, preaching as many as seven sermons a day, People took notice of his passion, and crowds frequently came to listen. Seeing his success, in 1973, the UPCP sent 23-year-old Kibaloi to a large Pentecostal youth conference in South Korea. Held in a hotel ballroom, hundreds of people gathered from around the world. At the end of the final day, conference leaders held an altar call. Kibaloi went to the front with countless others, drawn by an overwhelming sense of God's presence in the room. People wept and prayed, overcome by the Spirit of God. Caught up in the ecstasy of the moment, Kibaloi suddenly heard someone speaking to him in his native language. Loudly and clearly, the voice said, I will use you. Hearing his native tongue being spoken shocked Kibaloi. He had thought he was the only Filipino in attendance, but when he looked around to see who had spoken, there was no one else there. Kibaloi became convinced that he heard the voice of God. What else could it have been? He'd heard God's voice before, but only in dreams. Now God had spoken to him while he was wide awake. Feeling overwhelmed by what had happened, he later spoke of the experience with other attendees. They acknowledged that when you pray, you talk to God. But if you hear God talking back, you need to see a doctor. Their rebuke crushed Kibaloi, leaving him confused. He wondered if he had imagined God's voice. He was still in turmoil when he returned home to the Philippines. Then, about a week later, he heard the voice again. While in an airport waiting for a flight, God spoke to him, repeating the same words, I will use you. Now more than ever, Kibaloi believed that God had chosen him for something important, but he still didn't know what God wanted. So he continued preaching, bringing people to the Lord. Despite his success, Kibaloi eventually came into conflict with his denomination. As Kibaloi told it, the local Pentecostal missionaries became jealous and tried to ruin his reputation by spreading rumors about him. 
The conflict caused him a lot of sleepless nights. Nearly at his wit's end, Kibaloi experienced yet another miraculous vision. It sent him on a course that changed his life. Coming up, Kibaloi meets a messenger from God and takes his teachings to the public. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you, from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. Now back to the story. By early 1974, 24-year-old Apollo Kibaloi worked as a traveling evangelist for the United Pentecostal Church of the Philippines. Called the preaching machine by his friends, he had a reputation as a charismatic speaker who sometimes heard the voice of God. But he'd also begun to upset some of the leaders in the church hierarchy who were uncomfortable with his heavenly visions. Kibaloi didn't pay any mind to the growing chorus of concerns. He felt called by the Lord and would follow wherever he led. And soon, Kibaloi would be led on an unexpected adventure. A stranger came to Kibaloi one day and said he had a message to deliver, but he couldn't tell him what it was right there. Instead, the man asked to meet Kibaloi at a local hotel later that night. Curious, Kibaloi agreed. However, upon his arrival, the man simply told him to use his hotel room and go to sleep. Confused but willing to follow the stranger's lead, Kibaloi did as he was asked. Before closing his eyes, he looked at the clock and saw that it read 12.01 a.m. Suddenly, a vision spread out before him. The ceiling above opened and he saw the night sky, awash with stars and moonlight. Similar to his first visionary dream at the age of 14, Kibaloi witnessed a bright star moving closer through the heavens. As it neared, it morphed into an arm with a white sleeve holding a bronze cauldron. The hand rotated and the cauldron turned, revealing words etched on the side. They read, strive to rhyme for unity. The hand then turned the cauldron the other way, and Kibaloi saw more words written there, but they were in a strange and unfamiliar language. As he read the foreign words, a voice told him never to reveal them to anyone. Then, just as quickly as it had started, the vision ceased, and Kibaloi found himself back inside his hotel room. He felt as though he'd been on a long journey, but when he looked at the clock, only two minutes had passed. The following morning, Kibaloi came out of his room and met the stranger again. The man took him to a settlement of indigenous people in a mountainous region south of Davao City. He instructed Kibaloi to stay there and live among the indigenous Balan, Realizing by now that God had sent the man as a messenger, Kibaloi complied. In March of 1974, not long after arriving in Kitbug, he went into a local town to preach at one of the UPCP churches. In the middle of his sermon, he suddenly broke off speaking when he spotted angels entering the chapel. Though no one else in the congregation saw them, the angels came up to Kibaloi and poured oil over his head. It soaked his body in clothes and gave off an aromatic odor. Apollo claimed that the people in the church who were true believers could smell it. 
Realizing what had taken place, Kibaloi announced to the congregation that he had just received God's anointing for his ministry. Most of them reacted with astonishment and praised God. After his anointing, Kibaloi continued living off the land and interacting with God regularly. He frequently heard God's voice during the day and experienced visions at night. He felt that God was preparing him for a completely new ministry, one independent of the UPCP. Later that year, Kibaloi moved back to his hometown of Tamayang near Davao City. Once there, he found that his year-long visionary retreat had caused an uproar within his denomination. Many people, including his own brothers, thought he'd gone crazy. As a result of the backlash and rejection, Kibaloi isolated himself in a compound in Tamayang, where he built a small chapel and allegedly subsisted on bananas. He continued preaching there and lived alongside a few of his most faithful followers, but he otherwise refused to interact with the outside world. Shunning television, radio, and newspapers, he sought to keep his mind clear to hear the voice of God. Whatever went on in Kibaloi's mind, he was at the peak of it during these years. He claimed he was assaulted by demons and struggled to resist temptation. And the more he isolated himself and spoke of hearing voices and seeing visions, the more people rejected him. But he viewed their reactions as necessary persecution that he had to endure. He likened it to Jesus' time in the wilderness, where the devil tempted him with power and fortune. Like Jesus, Kibaloi believed God was testing his mettle, seeing if he had what it took to stay true to God's calling for him. But the persecution and rejection weren't universal. He developed a core following of local people who attended his services in Tamayang and fell under his spell. They believed that he had a unique connection to the divine. Throughout the late 70s, he and his small congregation regularly experienced miracles, visions, and the presence of God. Kibaloi claimed to have been taken up into heaven on multiple occasions, reflecting a similar account in the Bible about the Apostle Paul. During these heavenly sojourns, Kibaloi received divine revelations, which he then brought back to earth for his listeners. As a result of his dreams, visions, and heavenly visits, Kibaloi came to believe that he wasn't merely being called to evangelism. Instead, just as his mother had always said, Kibaloi had been appointed as God's true son. According to Kibaloi, the six years he spent in training from 1974 to 1980 were monumental. He claims that such intense spiritual training has only occurred twice before in history. The first time was with Moses, and the second was with the Apostle Paul. Moses' education prepared him to carry the Jews out of bondage in Egypt, while Paul's purpose was to bring the message of Christianity to the world. As the third and final prophet in this line, Kibaloi finally came to understand the purpose God had been calling him to since birth. He'd inaugurate the second coming of Christ and lead humanity to salvation. By the end of the 1970s, Kibaloi was on shaky ground with his denomination. Yet in 1980, he was named the pastor of a local church in Davao City. He remained there for five years, but he still courted controversy by continuing to claim divinity and flouting church doctrines. In early September of 1985, 35-year-old Kibaloi packed his things and departed before the denomination booted him out again. With 15 followers in tow, he left his UPCP church for good and set out on his own. He began preaching out of a small chapel, 
Kibaloi named his congregation the Kingdom of Jesus Christ, the name above every name. It eventually became known as the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now liberated from the doctrines and regulations of a denomination, Kibaloi felt free to pursue his theology as he saw fit. He could also make himself the center of his quickly growing cult of personality. Building on his divine experiences with God, he preached that he embodied Christ's second coming. As one description on the church's website puts it, he is the representative of the Almighty Father here on earth. He is the body in which the Father dwells. As such, salvation could only be attained through Kibaloi and his teachings. Many of Kibaloi's followers lived together communally. One of them, a woman called Sister Eleanor, had recently graduated from college with an engineering degree. She stated to the Manila Bulletin, We left our life of comfort as young professionals and chose to follow in his footsteps. Pastor Apollo would speak of great things, how one day he would bring all of us to different countries all over the world. These early followers were devoted to him like disciples, and they helped him build his ministry from the ground up. They dealt with significant adversity and were rejected by the mainstream religious authorities. They were so poor, they often had to scavenge for leftover food at the marketplace. Kibaloi was so thin, his assistants reportedly stuffed his pants with newspapers so they wouldn't fall off his hips. But they persevered together, and the congregation steadily grew. By 1991, Kibaloi had scraped together enough money to make a deal with a local television station to begin airing a weekly service. Regular broadcasts brought him exposure to a whole new segment of the population. His charisma and personality proved to be well-suited to TV, and his church rapidly grew. New members showed up every week, and the money finally rolled in. Over the decade, Kibaloi built his congregation into a regional powerhouse. Thousands flocked to his message, but Kibaloi had grander ambitions. In the early 2000s, he acquired a television network and broadcasted globally. Now he could reach millions of people with every sermon. But under the pleasant on-screen demeanor, he ran his organization with a strict discipline, one that tightened as the church grew in size and influence. With his new cash flow, Kibaloi built a compound in Davao that grew to over 60 acres. Many of the employees not only worked there, but lived there full-time. Kibaloi separated the men and the women and required them to follow a strict dress code. Upon being hired, they signed a vow to stay committed to the organization for life. Their days were planned out with military precision and included multiple prayer services, chores, exercise, and communal meals. Each employee worked within one of about a dozen departments, ranging from construction and engineering to music and food service. Kibaloi himself oversaw much of the daily life of the community. He even went so far as to supervise how his followers cleaned and polished the cutlery in the kitchens. As a child, those around him knew him as a clean freak. Now, as the head of a religious empire, he performed surprise room inspections on his employees. He opened their drawers and inspected their desks. He even scrutinized their vehicles in the parking lot. But it wasn't just their rooms that underwent his inspection. He also delved into their private lives and expected them to meet certain morality standards. Some have accused the kingdom of Jesus Christ as being unaccepting of LGBTQ followers. In addressing criticism about this, high-ranking senior member Regina Arevalo stated, 
We have a dynamic community of reformed LGBTQ members. We tap their skills and talents for interior designing, furniture designing, and hair and makeup. It's not clear what's meant here by reformed LGBTQ members, but the church's strict discipline and moral codes led to a significant amount of controversy. And not just among the queer community and their allies. As the church reached unheard of levels of popularity in the Philippines, Kibaloy faced alarming accusations. Some came forward saying Kibaloy had brainwashed people and held them as virtual slaves. Others accused them of immigration crimes, including human trafficking. However, the most damning claims came in 2008, when Kibaloy was accused of being involved in a murder. Coming up, explosive allegations make their way to the public, and Kibaloy makes an important ally. By the early 2000s, Apollo Kibaloy, then in his 50s, headed a religious empire in the Philippines. Members of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ revered him as the appointed Son of God. Over 20 years, Kibaloy had turned a congregation with 15 devoted followers into a multinational organization. He reached millions of people around the world through television, radio, and the internet. But as the church grew and gained influence, Kibaloy had become more and more demanding, allegedly micromanaging every facet of his organization. He also began courting serious controversy. It was one thing for Kibaloy to claim that he spoke to God and was the personal source of human salvation. But it was another thing when people started accusing him and his organization of criminal activity. In 2005, a Filipino mother named Erlinda Rilan accused Kibaloy of brainwashing her 18-year-old daughter, Arlene, and refusing to let her leave the congregation. In seeking help to recover her daughter, Rilan appealed to the local city council. But Kibaloy rebuffed their efforts to mediate with Arlene, citing Filipino law separating church and state. When the city council couldn't help her, she hired lawyers and sued the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. In her suit, Rilan claimed information about the inner workings of the church, as she used to be a member. She stated that Kibaloy required members to tithe a large part of their income and to take part in a fundraising campaign every year. While the church called it the month of sacrifice, it actually lasted three months. From November until January, members were required to go door-to-door -door selling food and other products on behalf of the church. Rilan hoped this information proved that the church acted unethically and maybe even broke the law. But after Rilan went public with her appeal, her daughter Arlene issued a statement insisting she'd joined the group freely and didn't want to leave. She later appeared on television repeating the same message. Her mother's lawyers, however, contended that she was under Kibaloy's control and had been programmed to follow the commands of the kingdom's leaders. They claimed that other teens had also been forced to stay against their will and had been detained with the use of mind control. Despite this information, in the end, Rilan lost her case, and the Kingdom of Jesus Christ maintained that her daughter went and stayed with them willingly. As we've highlighted many times, the idea of mind control remains controversial in the psychological field. As such, it's often hard to prove and rarely recognized by courts across the globe. According to researchers Sarah Marks and Daniel Pick, since the 1950s, the notion of brainwashing, no less than radicalization, often obscured far more than it reveals. 
Both terms could be a lazy way of refusing to inquire further into individual histories, inviting the assumption that the way people act can be known in advance. In short, the human mind is so complex that it's hard to single out a single factor for why someone would join a group like the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in court, it's difficult to prove that someone's mind has undergone a complete change because of forces like religious indoctrination. Unfortunately for Rilan, she never received the answers she was looking for, and as of early 2021, never convinced her daughter to leave Kibaloi's side. Arlene remained with the group and became Sister Arlene full-time miracle worker. In speaking of the controversy with her mother, in a public Facebook post, she stated, It was my decision to become one of the armies of goodness, because it is in the sun that I have found true love. Rilan lost her daughter to Kibaloi and his kingdom, but others have accused him of far worse than brainwashing. According to later accounts, at some point in 2007 or early 2008, a tribal leader named Domingo Diarog received a visit from a local district official named Greg Canada. In addition to being a government official, Canada also counted himself as a faithful member of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. He allegedly approached Diarog about selling the tribal leader's five-acre property to the church. Diarog's property abutted Kibaloi's so-called Prayer Mountain. Designed to emulate the Garden of Eden in the decades after his rise to power, Kibaloi had transformed it. It now housed manicured gardens with lush greenery, streams, waterfalls, and quiet nature trails. Kibaloi had also built a private mansion on the land. Pointing out that his property resided on the ancestral lands of the Bogovo, Diarog refused to sell. But according to what Diarog's family would later claim, Canada persisted. Over the next few months, he allegedly returned to make further offers, sometimes couching them with threats. Each time, Diarog politely refused. Unwilling to take no for an answer, Canada allegedly resorted to something much more sinister. In early March of 2008, he allegedly paid a visit to one of Diarog's relatives, a man named Jonas. Jonas later testified that Canada offered to pay him and his brother the equivalent of 400 American dollars to kill Diarog. He claimed that when they refused this deal, Canada hired other people to burn the tribal leader's home. Through March and early April, these assailants made four attempts to set the house on fire. Things finally came to a head on the night of April 29, 2008. Around 10.30 p.m., the family heard something outside. Perhaps thinking about another arson attempt, Diarog went to investigate. As soon as he stepped outside his home, gunfire rang out, and Diarog collapsed in a hail of bullets. Mass gunmen strafed the entire house, seriously wounding Diarog's wife and two of his ten children in the process. Terrified, 33 other families in the area fled into nearby banana plantations. Everyone feared being the next target of the unknown assassins, but no further attacks occurred. Diarog's widow, Emily, sought help from the Philippine Human Rights Commission. She accused Canada of orchestrating the arson attempts as well as her husband's murder and claimed Canada worked on Kibaloi's behalf. Emily stated that the assassins were members of a military auxiliary unit who'd been assigned to protect Prayer Mountain. She recognized the soldiers by armbands on their clothes. When Emily's report went public, Kibaloi immediately went into damage control mode. He took out full-page ads in major newspapers around the country, categorically denying the charges. 
He stated they were just another attempt to slander him at his church. Rodrigo Duterte, a rising political star in the Philippines who was at that time the mayor of Davao City, stood by Kibaloy. The fact that Duterte himself had been accused of overseeing extrajudicial killings didn't seem to matter. The popular mayor influenced the police as well as public opinion. The authorities dropped the case, and the killers of Domingo Diarog were never brought to justice. Still, Kibaloy continued to be the prime suspect in the eyes of many members of Diarog's tribe, and they blamed him later for additional crimes. In 2012, 13 homes in the area were burned down, while in 2014, several families were chased off their land. In both cases, indigenous rights groups accused Kibaloy and his land-grabbing schemes. Kibaloy denied any involvement. Having Mayor Duterte in his corner may have been a godsend for Kibaloy, and it didn't hurt when Duterte's aspirations rose to new heights. During the country's 2016 election cycle, Duterte ran for president, and Kibaloy became his closest spiritual advisor. Kibaloy even loaned Duterte his private jet and helicopter during the campaign for office. All of those political favors paid off when Duterte won the election. Given his close relationship with the new president, we might assume that Kibaloy received an almost unheard of level of immunity. Even so, Kibaloy continued to be hounded by accusations of wrongdoing. In January of 2020, he ran afoul of federal authorities at one of his satellite churches in the United States. Three members of his Hawaii and Los Angeles operations were arrested by the FBI on charges of immigration fraud and suspicion of human trafficking. They were accused of setting up phony marriages for dozens of church members to keep them from being deported back to the Philippines. According to the charges, these members had been brought to the United States to raise funds for the church by selling donuts and other goods door to door. They were allegedly forced to work long hours and were physically abused if they didn't reach sales quotas. Though the money supposedly supported the church and its charitable activities, federal authorities asserted that the money primarily went into Kibaloy's pockets. In response to these accusations, the church said the complaints were false, based on a few disgruntled former members. As of this recording, the FBI's investigation of Kibaloy's church in the United States is still ongoing. Despite these accusations and controversies, the church today continues to thrive. As a close confidant to Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte, Kibaloy gained an even bigger audience than ever. He's also earned the validation of his ministry at the highest level. The church claims four million members in the Philippines and another two million worldwide. The organization runs a multimedia group called Sunshine Media Network International. It includes multiple television and radio stations, publishing houses, and streaming services. The church's 65-acre compound in Davao City hosts a school that teaches every grade, from preschool through college-level bachelor's degree programs. At the compound, construction is currently underway on a 75,000-seat stadium, when completed, it'll be the world's biggest indoor arena. Slated to open in 2022, it will be used as the biggest megachurch on Earth and will also host concerts and major sporting events. At 71, Kibaloy has no plans for retirement. He's fully transformed himself from a young man full of visions into a religious tycoon, and he doesn't plan to stop there. 
According to one of his websites, he's foreseen that the entire world will eventually seek him out, looking for salvation. And that era, Kibaloy says, is just around the corner. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Scott Christmas. With writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin. And research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real-life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.